As most of you know, or many of you know, this summer we're going through a portion of the Psalter, the Psalms, in book two. Five books in the Psalms, we're, we're focusing in on book two, and this morning uh, we've gotten to Psalm 47. And if you've looked at it in the bulletin or, or remember it from your Bible reading, it's all about praising God as king. Now, I have a challenge this morning. It's kind of summed up in a conversation that I had with a a fellow over the week when he asked me what I was preaching on. I said, preaching on Psalm 47. It's about uh, God as king and how he is worthy of all our praise. And he looked at me and he said, wow, everybody knows that. (laughs) To which I responded, well, maybe... But it seems like if everybody really knew that, our lives would look a little bit different. See, there's no way getting around this. This psalm is all about simply praising God because he is king. Most commentators or many commentators believe that this is sometime after David had ruled uh, in Israel, and he effectively, by... Uh, by his work underneath the, the big king, God is king, he effectively took the people of Israel from obscurity and made them into a great nation. That They took them from being just a, a little clan of misfits, and now they're one of the biggest kingdoms in the world at that time. And people are being called together to celebrate This God who delivered his people and brought them to a good place. And they're to celebrate this God because he's king over the world. Not only only God's people are envisioned here as celebrating God as king. It's the whole world. It's the enemies of God even. They are having to acknowledge that God is king. So to, to, to get over this little challenge that I have this morning, thinking that, that many of you know about Psalm 47 and understand what it means to have God as king, or maybe some of you don't even have an idea, the, the way that we're going to go through this passage is we're first going to look at why God is king. Not why God is king, but, but God is king. Because the psalmist starts out by saying, clap your hands, so we're going to look at what is, what are the things that we clap for, that we applaud for, that we get excited about. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we're going to see why God is the one that enlarges your vision of life. That if you're not clapping for him most, then you might be clapping for the wrong things that are close to you. Then we're going to see why we should be praising God as king more than anything else. And then lastly, we're going to look at this idea that if we know these things to be true, how come maybe they're not impacting our lives like, like, like it ought to? Okay? So let's look at Psalm 47. Read with me. It's printed for you in your, in your bulletins or in your Bibles. Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all peoples, Shout to God with loud songs of joy. 
For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. He's a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the message of this particular passage. And I pray that you would, you would give us clear vision about seeing our king seeing you as our king. Would you help us understand what that means, the implications of that for our lives? Would you even take us in this this short time to come, would you take us from maybe seeing this but not clearly, would you take us to a place of clear vision that we would truly understand who the king is And understand what the king has done for us. Help us now. We depend on you. In Christ's name. Amen. So the first thing that I want us to consider. And I want you to think about. And I'm going to say it like this. Because you can can actually translate verse 1. Applaud all you peoples. Shout out to God with praise. What is it on a daily basis that you clap for? Not literally, but, but what, what gets you excited? What are you looking forward to? Or maybe not what you're looking forward to. What do you get frustrated about because you can't get those things that you'd like to get? But those are some of the things that you are applauding. And it's different for all of us, right? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit over 50, just a little bit over 50. And um, I like food, Right? We can clap for food, can't we? Food's a good gift of God. So, so what happens usually when I get into work, one of the first things that I think about is, oh, I got three, four, five hours to get a lot of work done because that's when lunch comes. Kind of frames my little world, right? And I get back from lunch and got some people to meet or some things to do, and I think, ooh, I can't wait to get home because I get another meal. That's what frames my life. Look, there are other things that frame my life. Work frames my life. Uh, the, the fun things that I look for frame my life. And you have all sorts of things as well. Even if you're a young person here, you just got out of school. You don't go to school anymore. So school used to frame your life a little bit. And now you don't have school. So what are you, what are you looking for? What are you asking mama for and daddy for? You're always, hey, can we go to the pool now? When are we going to the beach? That's what you're clapping for. Those are good things. That's your little world, and God has given you this little world, and it's a good little world. Now, I will, I will admit there are probably some bad things that, that order our lives. But for the most part, we're looking for the good things. The psalmist here is asking us to expand our vision a little bit. To not just look at the little world that we live in. But to think about what lies behind these things and realize there's only one thing that makes all these other things matter, and it's the fact that you have a God and he's a king. 
If we're not praising this king more than these other things, in the end, we may end up praising one thing too much or another thing not enough or maybe even praising the wrong things. The psalmist world, well, look, he did a lot of other things. But the the big world that the psalmist lives in is framed by one overarching, controlling idea, and it's verses 1 and 2. Clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord most high is to be feared. He's the great king over all the earth. Notice a couple things. First of all, he's calling all people to recognize this. Whether or not you think God is king, this psalm is directed to the entire world because it's true. And he says very specifically, we are to fear this God. Why should we fear this king? Let me tell you why the psalmist uses this word. I'm going to tell you why first, and then I'm going to explain to you what what this fear looks like. This fear that the psalmist is addressing here, it's what helps us understand what it is we most care about. This fear helps us come to grips with determining whether or not all those things that are close to us, all those things that are important to us, all those things that we think matter... This fear helps us understand how we should order them, whether or not we should be spending time on them, whether or not how much time we should spend on them. Because fear in the Bible, listen, that's the why this fear is important. But what is the fear? Fear in the Bible is not only this idea of being afraid or trembling. Sometimes it is. There are times when when people ought to be afraid. But that's not the way the psalmist is using it here. We're not to fear this king because he's a tyrant and we're trembling. The psalmist says, fear this king, and he means it like this. We are to care about what he thinks. We are concerned more about who this king is and what he thinks. We care about that more than anything else. We want him to think well of us. So the psalmist is saying, when he says, fear God, fear this king, listen to this. Instead of being most concerned about what other people think of you, instead of being overly concerned with even what you think of yourself, the psalmist is saying, we better be more concerned about what God, who is king, thinks of us, and that's what it means to fear him. Look at it this way. Okay, so so think about this. If you care about what other people think of you, or or you even care more about what you think of yourself than anybody else, and you do those things more than you care about what God thinks of you, in some sense, you're making them kings in your life, right? If I care more about what Bob thinks of me then then Bob's going to control some of the things that I do. He's going to frame my little world, right? Because I want to make him happy. If if I care more about what I think of myself than you do, then I'm going to live a certain way. And, you know, sometimes it might make you happy. Sometimes it may not make you happy. And sometimes it might be right. Sometimes it may not be wrong. The problem is we never know. 
You see, on the other hand, if you have this God who is king and you care most about what he thinks, then sometimes you're going to make some people happy. Sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're going to even feel happy, but sometimes not. The point is, either way, it really doesn't matter because if your king who is God is happy, that's all that matters because God is the one to be praised most. That's the first thing that the psalmist is trying to communicate, that God is the one worthy of all praise. It doesn't mean that we're not supposed to be happy and excited about other things. It just means if we're not praising this God more than we're praising other things, then we might have life a little bit mixed up. But that's not enough, is it? Just to know that we ought to be praising God as king, that's not enough. So the psalmist goes on, and secondly, he tells us why it matters. He's explaining to us why we ought to care more about what God thinks of us than what other people think of us or even what we think of ourselves. And there's two reasons. The first reason is because he wins. He's victorious. And you see how he wins in verse 3 and 4. He subdues, he chooses, and he loves. So think about this. We have a king. This is one of the reasons why we are to praise this king. He subdues our enemies. He defeats our enemies. Who doesn't want a king that can't beat the enemies? We all like a king like that, right? Not only that, he chooses our heritage for us, our inheritance. Meaning, this king has a vision. And if he's a good king, we're going to want to go where he goes. And then lastly, he says, his people, the people that acknowledge God and are giving him praise, his people, they are the pride of Jacob, and he loves them. So think about this. All right, this is important. Because you think you have a king, and you think you know your king, but you really don't. We don't have a problem imagining a king who subdues our enemy. Every great king that's a great king, he beats up on the enemies, right? I mean, who wants a king that loses all the time? Not only that, we'd like a king that has this great vision for us, and he's leading us on this path, and we're going, and at the end, we have this great inheritance. That's easy. You want to know what's hard? This king who wins, he's proud of his people. That's what it means, the pride of Jacob. And he's proud of his people, not because they're that great. It's simply because he loves them. And I want this to bear down on us, okay? Most of you know I have three children. They're grown. They finally moved out of the house. And they're, they're actually not asking for as much money as they used to. And over the course of the year, because of the things that they've been doing and, and because they've moved away, I've had an opportunity to share with each of my three children how proud their mother and I are of them. And be real clear, we're not, we're not proud just because they have a job. We're not even proud because we think they're successful. We're proud Because they're ours, and we simply love them. And that's nothing new for them. You want to know what's new? As they get older, as they mature, they're finally starting to believe it. 
They're starting to believe that their parents are proud of them simply because we love them. And you know what happens when they start believing it? They hear that, I'm, that we're proud of them. They start believing it. And when they start believing it, they start moving back in our direction, not physically, but, but as people. And, and they start to ask questions like, hey, Dad, what do you think of this? Hey, hey, Dad, I need to talk to Mom because she knows more about this than you do. Can I, can I see what she thinks? You see, what happens is when they start believing that their parents are proud of them just because they're ours, they, it changes them. They want to know what we think. They even want a little bit more than they used to. They want to make us happy. They live in a different world with a renewed vision of who they are and their purpose in life. So my question is, have you ever thought about God, who is your heavenly father, who is also king of the universe? Do you really believe that he's proud of you? Not because you've done anything great, just because you're his and he loves you. In fact, I want to say it like this. The psalmist says, clap your hands for the Lord. you know what this is all about? The, the God of heaven is reigning above and he's clapping for you. And when you see him clapping for you, you want to return that praise. I saw it yesterday. Joe, what's the Belmont? That, that, that little jockey, he, he won the triple crown on the horse. And... and of course, on the horse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I say that because, look, what happens? He's running back and forth the grandstands, and everybody's applauding him. They're applauding him, and he's raising his hands like he should be. He should be really excited. But what happens after it becomes so overwhelming for him? He stops, and he starts pointing to the horse because he's starting to get embarrassed because he knows that it wasn't him. Sure, he had some part to play, but it's all about the horse. That's what it's like to live in God's kingdom as God is your king. He's praising you. He's, he's, he's working on your behalf and he's clapping for you. And he's saying, I am proud of you. And what that makes you want to do is make him proud. So the first reason that we're supposed to praise this God who is king is because he wins. He not only wins against his enemies, he wins our hearts. That's what he's doing. There's another reason. It's very simple. He rules. He reigns. Verses 8 and 9. He reigns over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. All the princes or the princely ones, they gather before him. You could say the people of God, the people of the God of Abraham, they are the shields. They are the battle weapons. They're all living for their king because he alone is highly exalted. So it's, it's not only because he wins. He defeats his enemies. He, he chooses this path for us to go on. Not only does he win us, our own hearts, but regardless of the way you respond to him, it doesn't really matter because he's in charge. Praise God. Clap your hands for him because he wins and he rules. And it's all pretty clear for the psalmist, isn't it? And this is great. I mean, this God is king, and he's worthy of our praise. And he says, worthy of our praise by singing a song or a psalm. You know what the word psalm here is in the Hebrew? It's very closely related to wisdom and understanding. In other words, what the psalmist is saying is you see your God is king and you start giving him the praise that he alone is due. It brings with it this wisdom and understanding. And this wisdom and understanding starts to frame our world so that all those little things that you're doing in your own little world, they start to make sense. 
or you're able to make sense of them. Do you see this? It's not like your little worlds don't matter, but they only matter in light of the big world with the big king. And, 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 and when you start seeing your God ruling and reigning and winning, you can start, you start looking at life with a new wisdom and a new understanding. And it starts to frame your world so that you're better able to understand what it is you should be doing, what it is you shouldn't be doing. Not perfectly, but it gives you this framework to say, hey, this is how God created me. This is what I need to be doing. This is who my kids are. This is what I need to be doing with them. It's real clear for the psalmist here, isn't it? You do need to know that the people of God didn't keep their clarity. Right? They forgot. They got distracted by idols. They ended up forgetting that this God was king and they went their own way and they ended up being sent into exile. It's not as clear as it needs to be, is it? Which is why we come to this last point. Sure, if you go to church here, you know that God is your king and he ought to be praised. I know you know that. I also know that if you're like every other human being that exists in the world, you forget. The world comes crashing in on you. And it's really hard to remember this, isn't it? That's exactly why Rob read Mark 8 in our New Testament reading. Remember the reading? Were you paying attention? The blind man who can now see but doesn't really see, that's us. We see just not real clearly. Our vision, it might be a little bit better than it used to be, but it's not as good, it's not as, good as it needs to be. We have blurry vision. You want to know how? Let me give you just real quickly. Yeah. Real quickly, what it means to have blurry vision. You're here today. But we won't see you next week. We may not see you the following week. It's summertime after all, right? It's pretty out there. You'll come maybe twice a month when it's convenient. Or maybe, this is a good one. You, you got blurry vision if, if forgive me, because I know some of you have said this to me. You have blurry vision if you say, you know, I'd come to Sunday school if it didn't start so early. I don't know what world you live in, but 9.15 is not early. Now, that's not exactly fair, because there are some reasons and good reasons why you can't always come to church. And it's not because... It's coming to church that's important. It's what we do that is important. So you can do this at any gospel-believing church. So really, we don't, we don't care as much about what church you go to as just worshiping at a church with other people. There's another way that you can tell. And this is, this is something that will apply to all of us. Life is certainly blurry if you don't try to live out what we do here this morning from 
10.30 to 12, meaning not just the sermon. I'm talking about thinking about God calling to you and you responding to God with, with praise and, and you asking God in prayer to meet your needs and confessing your faith and, 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 and confessing your sin and, and remembering his love for you in spite of your sin. If all those things that we do here on a Sunday morning, if they're not impacting your life this afternoon through Saturday night, then your vision is blurry. And I'm not saying, oh, you need to live your life perfectly from Sunday afternoon to, to Saturday night. What I'm saying is, are you living in light of what God has done because you don't live perfectly? Because the people that you live with and the people that you work with, they know whether or not you have blurry vision. You see, the Old Testament, Old Testament saints, they, they got blurry vision too. But I have to tell you, I, I think they had a, I don't think they had a good reason because God was working on their behalf, but they had a better reason than you and I. You see, their king hadn't come yet. They were still waiting on their king. And when the king finally showed up, he was so different than what they expected, they missed him. Maybe that's our problem. I will tell you, Peter in the New Testament did the same thing. That's why we kept reading our passage in Mark chapter 8, right? Jesus comes to this blind man. He comes up close to him. He says, can you see? And he says, yes, I can see, but not very clearly. Or I can see people like trees. And then Jesus comes closer to him and, and, and puts his hands on him. Can you see now? And he says, yes, I can see clearly. Do you think Jesus made a mistake there? The two stages, he just messed up the first time. Now he didn't make a mistake. He was showing us something, and it comes to real life with the life of Peter because Peter did the same thing. You want to know how we can tell? When you read the rest of that chapter, what happens? All the guys, they start going off to the, to, to the town, and, and, and Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the king. And Jesus says, ah, that's good. You see, kind of. And the reason why he says kind of is because then Jesus says, well, this is what the king's going to have to do, and he's going to have to suffer, and he's going to have to die. And Peter says, no. And Jesus has to rebuke Peter because Peter wasn't seeing clearly. He saw the king, but he saw the king like a big tree. Peter needed to see, Peter needed to experience the king who came in the flesh to die for his sin. And today, we're supposed to be able to stand back and know who the king is because the king has come in the flesh and know what he did because what we do is we see this king subduing and choosing and loving and so proud of his people that he goes to the cross all by himself and dies for his people. You see, we have this picture of a great king who's, who's leading his people out of the castle. But what happens when all those kings lead the people out of the castle to fight? When he gets to the fight, what does the king do? He jumps around back and says, go get him. You know what this king does? This king goes himself even when all his people stay in the castle and he fights for them unto death. And we know that his death is a victory because the grave doesn't hold him. He's been raised from the dead. He's the one that this psalm is praising because he's the one that's gone up and he sits on the throne and he rules. And that's a pretty clear picture of our king. Is that the king that you're praising? 
Because the cross of Christ moves us from a blurry vision of reality, the blurry vision that we get when we get all wrapped up in our little world, and if we just take a step back and we'd look at the cross of our king, it would focus our, our vision. And when you see the king with eyes of faith, And you experience this king going to a cross and dying for you. Everything else in your life will fall into place. You'll have a better idea what you need to be clapping for and what you need not to be clapping for. And listen, and I'm going to conclude with this. I don't have much left. I know that, and this is really important to me. This is important to, I think, the session and all the pastors here at Redeemer. Many in our world today, even in our churches, and even with sermons, we want guidelines. We want these, these plans. We want these ideas so that we can take them home and apply them to our life so that we can order our Sunday afternoon through Saturday in a right way that gives us everything that we need so that we think we can be happy and do everything right. Do you think do you think Taylor and Kayla who baptized little Millie this morning do you really think anybody here can tell them exactly what they need to do and how they need to do it and when they should do it to raise that little baby up in a way that that ensures her salvation do you really think that you, My point is, there's no pocket guide to Christianity. You want a pocket guide. Not not you, maybe. I hope not. But some of the questions that you ask sometimes makes me think you you want a a pocket guide. And you're not going to get that here. You're not going to get that at Redeemer. I'm pretty sure. I can't speak for everybody, but I I think they're with me. And let me tell you why you're not going to get that here. Because first of all, that's not Christianity. That's not the Christian faith. You can pick up a lot of books in the bookstore to give you a pocket guide on how to do your life and just go try. That's not Christianity. Secondly, any list that I give you, any pocket guide that, that anybody gives you, it's, it's not going to work for you. It might work for me, but it won't work for you because I don't know you like I know me. And lastly, and this is the most important thing, even if we could give you these, these perfect things to do to order your life, this, this is great. You won't do it. Because you can't do it. And that's exactly why the king came, and, and that's why the king did what he did in the way that he did it. You see, Jesus came to turn our whole world right side up because we have everything upside down and even what we think we need is wrong. And the reason why Psalm 47 is so important, when you catch a vision of the reality that your king has come, that he subdues, that he chooses, that he loves, that he's proud of you, that he rules, and he does this like no other king ever has, like no other king ever will, he does this by dying on a cross for you, the implications for your life are huge if you really believe it. 
And, and I can't even give you real concrete implications for you because the implications are different for me than they are for you. But I can tell you this, you know what it does? You know what the big implication is? Whoever would save his life will lose it and whoever loses his life will save it. You're no longer living for yourself. You're no longer living for what other people think of you. You're no, you're no long, long, longer living for your own pleasure and your satisfaction. You're living for the king. And when you live for the king, you're doing all sorts of things for other people that you never thought you could do. You might not exactly know what you need to do, but you're going to do something. And the beauty of this king is when you do something for him, he promises to work even if you're wrong. And it doesn't, that doesn't mean you should go out and do dumb things. It doesn't mean that you go out and, and, and do things that we know are not right in God's law. But it just means you have a king and he's so big, he's so powerful, he's working on your behalf so hard that he's proud of you. So go out and live life for the king. Clap your hands for the king. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared. He is a great king over all the earth. And the good news, brothers and sisters, our king has come. And he will come again. And we all want to hear, well done. Doesn't mean you do it perfectly. You've just been clapping your hands for the king. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for this vision of this vision of life that's so much bigger than what we get all wrapped up in Monday through Saturday. And I just pray that you would remind us, even as we come to the Lord's table, that we'd remember the death of Jesus Christ. And as we remember the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf, we remember that he's not only defeated all our enemies, but he's, he's won our hearts over to him. Would that become real in our lives? Would we worship the king? Would we love the king? Would we live for the king? And would we see Jesus here? And would we take him home with us? We pray in his name for his glory. Amen.